This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hey, hello and welcome everyone. I'm Hannah Garibaldi. I'm a graduate student here in our Film and Media Studies Department. And it's my pleasure to introduce Jocelyn. Jocelyn Sapaniak galise is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in English and Film Studies teaching courses related to special effects, hence why she's here, uh, film history and animation. She's known for her work on exhibition and spectatorship and is currently working on a new project investi investigating the role of intoxicants in historical film exhibition, which we have a question about a little later. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, so my first question, I want to start kind of at the basics, but it might be a deceptively simple question mm -hmm. for you. Um, but what do you consider to be a special effect? Sure. I first want to say thank you so much to Hannah, thanks to UCSB, and very, very special thanks to Patrice Petro, a brilliant scholar and a wonderful friend, for um, bringing me here. So, when we talk about special effects, they're always kind of deceptively simple, right? Um, to me, a special effect is uh, anything that we add to the image that contributes to the illusion, right? That enhances the illusion in some way. Um, but that's kind of a tricky definition, because when we start going back to the history of special effects throughout the history of cinema, we see that it's quite difficult to divorce um, effects from how cinema works writ large. Um, and at the time that The Wizard of Oz is made, it's a kind of really interesting moment in the history of special effects, because um, sound has hit Hollywood about just a little bit over a decade before The Wizard of Oz is made. Um, and that creates a whole new problem for where you can shoot. So most prestige films um, made in studios uh, at this time, after the introduction of sound, they have to be shot on set. They can't really be shot on location because of restrictions around sound. Um, so at this moment in time, special effects departments begin to expand like crazy. So at MGM in particular, at this moment, you have um, a special effects department, which, which oversees uh, everything from rear projection and miniatures, and then an optical department, which oversees mats, matte paintings, all of that, and of course the makeup department as well. So we begin to see that there's so many departments just at one studio focused on special effects and focused on enhancing that kind of an image. Wow, okay, yeah. so that's really interesting. And we'll yeah. get into more of the specifics of yeah. that and everything in a second. Yeah. Um, but one more kind of basic question, I guess, about special effects. So some scholars have discussed how digital technology allows everything in cinema to potentially become a special effect. <laughs> um, does viewing a historical film like The Wizard of Oz simplify our ability to distinguish what, what is and what is not a special effect? Right, and of course, I'm a film historian, so I'm going to say yes and no, right? <laughs> so both. It's both. Um, but I think when we look at historical effects, it enables us to see how much labor and intent have always gone into creating uh, the moving image. So when I teach the history of special effects, I always show my students um, The Great Train Robbery, the Edwin S. Porter film from 1903, because that has the first instance of a special effect used for a practical narrative purpose. And it's, it's a composite shot where there's, um, there's a train engineer employee working at a desk, and behind him there's a window where there's a train going by. Um, and that's an early composite shot, which means two shots made at different times that are then together in the frame. And my students still have a hard time 
seeing that that's a special effect. So when we go back and look at something from unbelievably 1903, right, and it's still very difficult to take apart that illusion, we begin to understand how the moving image in general is entirely an illusion, and an illusion of great effort and great labor. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to see that the digital is actually part of a continuum. Right? It's a continuum of constructing illusion um, that starts very, very early on in the history okay. of film. Yeah. Wow, that's so that's fascinating. Um, especially going back to very early Edwin S. Porter. I mean, that's very beginning. Yeah. yeah. So it's working so interesting. With, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I guess, I mean, going back to the kind of historical context, um, do we need that historical background to really appreciate it practical special effects like those we saw in The Wizard of Oz? Right. I think it really helps us because I, I bet I could ask most people in here how something like The Witch's Crystal Ball was done, and we still wouldn't be able to answer that. Right. Um, so knowing how it's done does allow us to appreciate um, what's on screen a little bit more. Or knowing how things like, um, it, it can also give us insight into different people uh, in different portions of the studio and what their kind of work was on a film like this. So we might say, okay, The Wizard of Oz, it's made by Victor Fleming. But that then ignores um, the, kinds of, uh, the kinds of people that were also working on this film, people like Vera Mordaunt, who was the head of the dyeing department at MGM in the 1930s. And uh, a bunch of women worked under her who all dyed all of the colors and shoes, everything, every bit of fabric with color on it that we see on screen, they worked on that. Right. Um, so if we look at this history of effects and how they work in a film like The Wizard of Oz, we're able to uncover these secret histories of people like women, women that have really major roles in constructing something like this that's so magnificent. It enables us to like uncover all of these kind of extra secret histories that we might not otherwise know. But you can also just look at it and be kind of blown away by how amazing it looks too. Yeah. So. And we'll get to Technicolor in a yeah, second, but yeah. obviously there's also a woman there, Natalie Kalmus, exactly. who's huge. Um, yeah. You might have seen her name on the screen as color director. Yes. So hopefully we'll get to that in a yes. little bit. Yes, great. Um, but going directly to The Wizard of Oz specifically, given that we just watched the film and it's fantastic to see it on the big screen, um, I want to ask you about some of the historical innovations that were pioneered or utilized to full kind of spectacular effect within the film, um, kind of answering the question, how did they do that? Um, so can you first describe a little bit about the kind of convoluted history of The Wizard of Oz's production um, and some of the optical and practical effects that you were kind of briefly mentioning, but maybe more specifics about those? Sure. Um, this is a film with a really, as you say, Hannah, a really convoluted production history. Um, in 1938, Mervyn Leroy and Arthur, Reed, Arthur Freed, who both work at MGM, they convince MGM to buy the rights to the novel. And part of the reason they're able to do that is because Snow White comes out in 1937, and it's a massive success. It makes Disney a ton of money. So they say, well, we can make a ton of money with this product as well. They convince MGM to buy the rights. Um, MGM agrees to a certain budget that's pretty high. By the time the entire movie is done, it costs $2.7 million and took 22 weeks of shooting. And if you compare that to like how much a prestige film cost at MGM at that time, generally around $400,000 and about a month of shooting. So this was, this was a completely outrageous you know, undertaking, just absolutely massive. And as a matter of fact, the movie doesn't make back its, uh, its budget for over 20 years. It takes over 20 years to make it back. It's kind of a failure. Um, so, yeah, imagine that. Um, 
So we have, uh, we have this like totally overblown uh, thing that's made. Arthur Freed, who later becomes uh, his unit at MGM, becomes famous for making all sorts of colorful, spectacular musicals at MGM later into the 40s. Um, he thinks this is a great star vehicle for a very young woman who has recently been put under contract at MGM, Judy Garland. He thinks this is the way we're going to make her into a big star, which is absolutely what happens. So that's, that's part of what's going on at MGM at that particular moment. They're trying to cash in on uh, what's happened with Disney and trying to make this big prestige drama. Um, but at the same time, there's this really uh, incredible special effects technician who is overseeing the FX department uh, by 1936. And his name is Arnold or Buddy Gillespie, who we saw in the credits. And Buddy Gillespie has this massive career in Hollywood. He works on over 600 films. Um, he works with Cedric Gibbons, who designed the Oscar statuette, all sorts of amazing stuff. So we have um, Buddy Gillespie overseeing effects, and we have um, a really wonderful optical department as well. Um, they had to figure out how to do a lot of different things for this production. So um, I'll give you just a couple examples of yeah. what some of the effects are. Um, so the crystal ball, as I, as I suggested earlier, that is done uh, in a it's relatively simple for an effect. It's relatively simple. It's a giant glass bowl, right, like a large bowl with the curvature facing the camera. And inside that bowl, there's a little teeny tiny screen. Um, and the optical department had pre-shot footage, so of the witch or of you know, the cowardly lion, of M, whoever is appearing in that. And they, they project the footage into a mirror that's set at a 45 degree angle um, against the screen in the bowl. Uh, and then when it's projected into this little tiny screen, the bowl makes it look, it magnifies the entire image, right? And then makes it look round and makes it look like a crystal ball, right? which is pretty impressive. Um, the cyclone is probably the most famous effect from this film. And that is done with uh, a 30-foot muslin, kind of like a sock, like a giant sock that was rigged up um, by a gantry at the top and then a little tiny like like a car on tracks at the bottom and then they had a pan of um, fuller's earth which is a kind of powdered dirt so when they ran this uh, ran this down the track the top spun and the bottom spun in slightly different directions and it created what looked like a cyclone with all of the kind of dirt kind of um, you know, flying up into the air at the same time. And then that was rear projected um, behind uh, Dorothy running or um, Auntie M running. So that's the cyclone, which was a really massive effect at the time. Um, what else is really interesting? The flying monkeys. Uh, mostly they're little tiny miniatures, about six inches large, um, hung by like thousands and thousands of wires, and then some actual um, actors in the foreground who were generally always like falling off the wires and so on. Always pretty dangerous to work at MGM in 1939. Um, <laughs> And then what are some other interesting ones? There's so many really uh, fascinating ones. But one of the simplest ones is actually the wizard, who is done very, very easily. That's just a double process shot, which means that they, um, they shot the image of his face talking and then just printed it on top of the other, um, the other footage of the wizard's uh, throne room. So that was a really, really simple effect, even though it's one of the most impressive ones. And what about the Wicked Witch of the West and her melting <laughs> sequence? Yeah. Because I know there's probably going to be questions about that. Yeah. Is there, are there any details about that particular moment? That one is one of the simplest effects. It's just a little, like, elevator okay. 
in the stage. So they just lowered her. They had her, um, they had her costume kind of like taped down and just okay. lowered her down. Okay. Right? It's all Margaret Hamilton's pretty fabulous performance. Wow. Oh yeah. My goodness. Yeah. So one of the most, I think, iconic moments is yeah. actually one of the simplest. Effects, it's actually is, one of the simplest. But wow. then, you know, an image like all of the friends like going down to the Emerald City, mm-hmm. that's pretty complicated because that's done with a matte painting. Right. Wow. So the Emerald City itself is um, with, with a matte painting, you you have like the camera and you block off part of it um, and you shoot, you know, people, your your quartet of friends like walking down the Yellow Brick Road. And then you've blocked off part of the image. And that part of the image is then um, there, there's a painting that's done by matte painters. Um, and then uh, the part that's already been shot is blocked off. So it's not exposed. And then you expose uh, the negative to the, the painting that's been painted by the matte painters. Um, so that image of the Emerald City is actually shot um, at a different moment in time, but it's shot on the same reel of film, on the same negative. And MGM did like amazing matte paintings that were really different than other studios because MGMs were made um, on black backgrounds with crayon pastels. So they have this like really rich like children's book kind of soft look to them that was quite distinctive for the studio. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So in terms of all the special effects that you've just listed, um, what is particularly special about how these techniques were used within this film as compared yeah. to other films which were also using you know, some degree of those special effects at that time? Yeah. I mean, MGM was known as just this prestigious studio that made beautiful pictures. Um, more stars than there are in heaven was their tagline, of course, at the time. But they also just had kind of some of the best people working. It was an incredible um, assortment of genuine professionals um, and genuinely skilled technicians and a lot of union labor. So I think what we what we see in The Wizard of Oz is an example of how like a lot of really skilled people with access to a lot of resources and a lot of money can work together really professionally, really knowing what they're doing and make something really exquisite. Like it's totally professional. Yeah, and the funding yeah. definitely with MGM was there. Yeah, the funding helps <laughs> yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah, Money always helps. <laughs> yeah, and maybe going a little more abstract here, but what about, or what allows special effects to have such a strong impact? Is it really the effects themselves kind of isolated right. in that moment, or is it really with the combination through the story? Kind of looking at yeah. Wizard of Oz as an example of that. Yeah, Wizard of Oz, which has like basically no narrative tension, right? It's like, is there a story? Kind of. It just sort of goes in a straight line, right? So I think this is an example of where it's all about the effect. And in fact, that's what critics said at the time. So think about like what people, what critics say about like the Transformers films, right? They're nothing. They're just explosions. There's no story. It's just spectacle. Well, that's basically what critics said about The Wizard of Oz when it came out, right? It's just spectacle. Not much there, there, right? It's just, um, it's just a studio trying to wow us with all of this money and effects technology. Um, And that's something, so that's a rhetoric that we see in a discussion about special effects from as early as The Wizard of Oz all the way to now, right? That's always this question about, is it the effects? Is it the story? Well, it can be both. Why not go see the movies for both? Mm-hmm. And I know Technicolor came across the same issues when you le- yes. read any review, almost yes. any Technicolor film <laughs> yes. of that period. Yes. Definitely like, oh, they're just highlighting all the color. Like they're right. just doing it. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Which we see here. I mean, yes. it's yeah. garish, yeah. right? It is over the top, yes. outrageous. But yeah. when there's new technologies like Technicolor, yes. right? If you, if you look at um, films that are made at a moment when a new uh, effects technology becomes mm-hmm. possible, they really foreground that effect because mm-hmm. it's like, we're putting so much money into this, you better pay attention yeah. to it. <laughs> right? yeah. 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 Okay, so 
Moving a little beyond special effects in this question here, um, I'm actually interested in the lack of effects, yeah. and specifically when we get that contrast mm -hmm. between um, Kansas and mm -hmm. Oz. So um, there are obviously major differences between that kind of mundane environment of the sepia tones, mm -hmm. and then we get the spectacular Oz with the color. Um, and also, Dorothy's tame appearance was actually supposed to be exaggerated mm -hmm. and doll-like, mm -hmm. and that was um, changed. Mm -hmm. So how does this contrast, in, and in certain cases, the absence of special effects, mm -hmm. um, contribute to the narrative of this film? Yeah, it's a really wonderful question. Um, I think that contrast is absolutely necessary here, right? Um, because we have, you know, Dorothy in this kind of banal Kansas setting. That's that's realism in a way, right? As, as you well know, Hannah, um, Technicolor at this moment signified fantasy, romance, like nostalgic historical narrative, anything kind of like that. Um, and so if we want to see something in the real world in 1939, it should be black and white, or in this case, black and white film that's then run through a sepia dye bath. Um, so we get this wonderful kind of contrast where we enter into the world of fantasy. And um, just, a, just a quick note about that shot when Dorothy moves into, um, into uh, Oz for the first time. That's actually a double with a separate um, sepia-toned costume and all painted in sepia makeup because there was no way to do a shot that combined um, black and white imagery run through a sepia dye bath with Technicolor at the same time. So that's a little kind of fascinating moment. Um, but when we think about this kind of a contrast, to me, it plays kind of like going to the movies. Right? It's like we live in our kind of banal lives that aren't so exciting. And then for a little bit of time, we go into this land of color and magic. And eventually we come out and we're a little bit changed, but we also appreciate the place in which we live. And I think that's part of what um, The Wizard of Oz does so beautifully is it makes us reflect upon what it's like to go to the movies. That's really interesting. And especially being an MGM big you know, yes. big flick, yeah. Yes. So definitely they're gonna wanna show that ostentatious kind of, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of, I wanna go into a little bit about maybe unlikely effects or things we might not expect to be effects um, at being used within this film. And I'm gonna go to Technicolor here. Yeah, great. <laughs> Just because that's my background. <laughs> um, so it's kind of impossible to avoid talking about Technicolor yeah. with this film. Mm -hmm. um, so could you provide some of the historical context and describe how this film employs the famous Technicolor package? Sure, wow, yeah. Where do we start with Technicolor, yeah, right? Um, <laughs> In this moment when The Wizard of Oz is made, uh, there's not that many Technicolor movies being made, right? Because Technicolor is, the corporation's been in existence since the mid-1910s, but they've been kind of making these kind of janky versions of Technicolor for a while. <laughs> Finally, in 1932, they come up, the Technicolor Corporation is able to make three-strip Technicolor, which is what uh, we're really familiar with and what we see here in The Wizard of Oz. Um, but it's still kind of hard to manage. It's still, um, it's still a little bit, you know, cinematographers aren't totally sure how to work with it. So it takes quite a long time for the studios to really get used to, um, to how to handle it. Um, and in 1932, uh, Walt Disney, who is you know, one of the most brilliant businessmen in uh, Hollywood history, he signs a contract with Technicolor, um, an exclusive contract. So he becomes the only animation studio that has access to Technicolor for three years. And what results out of that? Snow White, because he has all this time to experiment and then is able to make the first feature-length uh, Technicolor cartoon. Um, and this, of course, is a major, major inspiration for The Wizard of Oz because it makes boatloads of money, and studios love making boatloads of money and figuring out how to do that again. 
Um, so MGM sees, okay, we can make this kind of like a, almost like a children's spectacular, like a family-friendly spectacular um, using Technicolor. Um, so they, they, bring in, uh, they bring in the Technicolor Corporation for this film, and at that moment in time, that meant um, renting Technicolor cameras from the corporation itself. So the Technicolor camera is a very specific, um, very onerous um, kind of piece of equipment that involves like multiple, um, multiple strips of film running through at the same time. Uh, two pieces of film are bipacked, meaning their emulsions are touching in the camera, and another piece of film is also in there, and they're registering different color records. There's a whole system of prisms and uh, mirrors that uh, separate out the, um, the different dimensions of the spectrum uh, within the camera. So in order to make sure that the film is being shot properly, Technicolor would insist, okay, we're going to rent you the cameras, but you also have to have technicians on set. Because The Wizard of Oz takes so long to film, of course this results in tremendous amounts of spending just on the camera and the Technicolor technicians who are there. In addition, at this moment in time, the Technicolor um, process is still a really low-speed film, meaning that it requires a ton of light, right? It requires just so, so much light. And by 1938, there's like a slightly higher-speed Technicolor um, film, but at this moment, it still requires tons and tons of light. So that means there's banks of arc lights all over the set, and the actors are sweating buckets, right? Like, especially poor Bert Lahr, the cowardly lion who's wearing, like, real lion fur and is just, like, sweating his face off, right? (laughs) Under these massive, massive banks of arc lights. So it it was a tremendous undertaking, a massive kind of um, situation uh, to use Technicolor for a production of this kind of size. It also meant you you generally couldn't do things like um, rear projection, Right? Um, and you certainly couldn't do things like traveling mats, uh, which is where you could um, insert a figure into a background that's already been shot. It's not really possible with Technicolor uh, until about a year later. So the effects technicians had to find other ways of doing the kinds of effects that they wanted to do um, that wouldn't necessarily involve um, things that were only possible with black and white film at that moment. Wow, so some yeah. of like one effect leads to changes in exactly. other effects that are being used. And that exactly. creates like a massive puzzle and very complex in how to work around that. A big so, puzzle is exactly yeah. the way to put it, right? Like, okay, we've, we've, um, we've managed to figure out how to do this one effect, and then sound throws a total wrench in it. We've managed to figure out how to do this other effect, color throws a huge wrench in it, right? But this is something that we see throughout the history of filmmaking, right? Always trying to put these, new, these pieces of the puzzle back together um, in new and uh, innovative ways. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to what you said briefly about the Cowardly Lion, um, so that obviously got very hot and sweaty in that lion costume. I'm glad I wasn't there to yeah. smell it. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to discuss kind of the effects of the effects, yeah. um, and in this case, on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's numerous disasters that happened on set that have been documented on The Wizard of Oz, and it, in some cases, they vastly outnumber a lot of other productions of this period. Um, so what were some of the catastrophes that specifically related to the use of special effects in this film? Um, and is there an inherent risk correlated with the use of effects in films? And if we get a chance, I, was, I would be curious to hear what you say in relation to digital technology, how that yeah. might have changed. Yeah. yeah, this is a notoriously disastrous set. Just notoriously. Um, so things happen like, you know, watching it this time, I was just so struck by how much fire is in this movie. Right? Things are constantly on fire. And imagine, you're in a closed set, also with really, really hot lights. Right? That is so dangerous. There is just fire 
everywhere, right? And everybody's wearing heavy costumes. Uh, there's evidently straw everywhere too, right? <laughs> the risk is just uh, utterly absurd to watch it on screen. So one of the things that happens is that Poor Margaret Hamilton, who plays the Wicked Witch, of course, her makeup was all um, copper oxide, so she had to have a special barrier between her face and the, uh, the green copper makeup that's on top. But then she got really hideously burned in one of these fire, one of these kind of like explosions where the witch disappears. Um, she's out of commission for a while, um, and when she comes back, uh, her nerves are all still exposed on her hands. They had to make her wear green gloves for a while. Just really, really awful. At the same time, her stunt double, Betty Danko, also was horribly burned by one of the fires that go up. So you might notice there is no statement at the end of this film saying no witches were harmed during the making of this film because literally every witch is harmed in this film. Billy Burke breaks her ankle. It is really bad. Um, So lots of injuries from women in particular. And when you read histories of um, some of the directors of the time, Victor Fleming was notoriously hard, notoriously rigid, and notoriously sadistic to his actresses. And I think it's kind of telling that it's a lot of women that suffered on set because of Victor Fleming's noted sadism. Now that said, we love to hear about effects disasters, right? Like we all just like love to hear about it. Um, We love to talk about this narrative of how, you know, people are suffering to bring us this thing. Oh, so laborious. Everybody was sweating. Everybody was like, you know, breaking bones. We love, love, love to hear about this. And I think that's for a couple reasons. We kind of like to see stars punished, right? Because they seem so impervious, right? They're so lucky. They're so wonderful. They're so above us. So we want to see them like taken down a notch, right? Just like Victor Fleming. But the kind of thing that happens then that's so interesting is that, okay, so we understand that there's great labor and effort and even physical pain involved. But what that then serves to do, uh, in my opinion, is it kind of reifies the eventual illusion, Because we know that there's labor, we know there's injury, we know there's physical pain and like some semblance of devastation, but yet we still have this object that's miraculous and full of illusion and magical and wonderful. And it kind of speaks to this way that film works in general, right? Film is always this tightrope between like life and death, fiction and reality, being here in the seats and being here on the screen. And I think that that kind of, um, that, that movement between pain and wonder is, is also kind of a part of movie-making magic. Yeah, it kind of remystifies yeah. what's going on. It absolutely right? remystifies yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Speaking of remystifying, um, <laughs> you worked a lot in terms of exhibition and spectatorship, yeah. um, and specifically about where people actually watch films, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does where we see The Wizard of Oz influence our interpretation of its special effects? Yeah, this is a really special case because... Um, most people did not, have not, did not really experience The Wizard of Oz on the big screen, right? Of course, it's designed for the big screen, um, but uh, that wouldn't necessarily be where most Americans got their taste of it. Instead, we mostly got our taste for it on TV, right? Because um, MGM uh, sells the rights to CBS in the 1950s, and then it begins to show annually. That was one of the options that CBS got was uh, they could show it annually, like on holidays. Um, so that's where most of us have had experience with seeing The Wizard of Oz, even though it's supposed to be this big screen spectacular. But if you did see The Wizard of Oz on the big screen in 1939, um, generally speaking, 
that's a, that's a big moment for a transformation in movie theater architecture, right? So about 10 years before this, um, if you're seeing like a prestige picture, you're going downtown to um, one, of the, one of the theaters owned by MGM, right? And you're in a really opulent space filled with decoration. Uh, but in the 1930s, this starts to change. Um, and there starts to be uh, more building of modernist stripped-down theaters that instead enhance your immersion in the film. So, you know, think about the space that we're sitting in right now, which is really lacking in decoration, right? There's really nothing to distract your eye when you look around. So all of us then are sitting looking forward at the screen. Um, So when you see The Wizard of Oz in a space like this or in a space like a modernist movie theater from the 1930s, it enhances the way that you're immersed in the image, much the same way that sound does too, right? So this all leads to a kind of experience that is um, a maintenance of a massive shared illusion. And part of the way that works is the space in which we're sitting. And in terms of watching it on television, and especially, I mean, originally it was black and white television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, I mean, would that have, I mean, it obviously would have affected how people saw the film, especially the lacking the technicolor that was on screen. So anything about that or... Yeah, I mean, by the early 1960s, color TV is a lot more um, is is a lot more common, right? That's that's pretty common by the early 60s. Um, but we really think about the the small size of the screen and how that has a kind of impact. And it's so funny. I was talking to uh, my brother and a friend about The Wizard of Oz over the past couple of days, and independently of one another, we all thought this movie was like three hours long. Okay, we all had this idea, like, that it was this really long movie. And I thought, what? wait, that's not what it is at all. And it's because we're all so used to watching it with commercials, right? Um, so, it's the, yeah, it's this, like, extended film in our kind of collective consciousness that's very, very different from what we actually see. Um, but what it becomes, then, is, like, an event status that we link up with family, right, with special event and with experiencing in our home. Right? So in that sense, The Wizard of Oz tends to kind of infiltrate like a national imagination and thus reify the notion that the way we experience movies is with our family, on special events, especially on something like Thanksgiving, which is an only American holiday, right? So this is how we see the migration of a movie like The Wizard of Oz into how we live our lives as American citizens. It's pretty amazing. Very much inserted yeah. into community. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, so thinking about the longevity and kind of the iconic status of film props, um, what happens when a fictional aspect like the kind of shimmering, technicolorized <laughs> ruby slippers yeah. uh, leaves its on-screen home and develops real tangible significance? Yeah, that's another, that's a really great question, which is actually quite related to, um, to talking about the movie on TV. Um, the ruby slippers, there's about nine pairs, I think, um, and of course one pair sold for like two million dollars at auction, a couple years ago. One pair was famously stolen and recovered by the FBI recently. Um, But yeah, (laughs) I did not steal it. I'm not pointing fingers. but, um, But one pair, of course, is housed at the Smithsonian, at the National Museum of American History. And that, I think, is extremely telling. Because not only do we understand this film via television, which is one of our great American pastimes, right? Television, Great American pastime in our home, right? It's like domestic experience of technology. Um, but we also have the ruby slippers housed in, uh, in the National Museum of, of American History in Washington, D.C. When we think about the way that things are positioned in like a museum, 
they obtain a certain kind of like canonical status. And we all agree, therefore, that they're a part of our shared um, culture, of our shared historical legacy. So I think when we look at something like the ruby slippers, which are their own kind of effect and their own kind of illusion, it then helps us think about other kinds of illusions that we might share and other kinds of stories that we might tell, right? Stories like about our shared, um, his- our shared history, the idea that we have a universal shared history, the idea that everybody gets to participate in that history. That's also kind of like a cultural narrative that we tell ourselves. So when we start to like take apart how special effects work on screen, we're also able to begin to take apart the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves and the kind of stories we tell about our country and our experiences. Mm. Yeah, and that definitely goes with the whole community aspect, which yes, we talked yes, about in the previous question. Yes. Um, so you've worked a lot, well, your new project deals with intoxicants um, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and cinematic experience yeah. while, while under the influence. Yeah. Um, so Wizard of Oz has had kind of a second life as a countercultural object mm-hmm. uh, used by spectators in unintended ways. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between special effects and spectatorship, especially in terms of altered states of consciousness? Yes, I would love to. So in 1995, this journalist named Charles Savage publishes an article in the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. And this article claims that um, people have been doing this practice where, like, you play Pink Floyd's 1972 album, The Dark Side of the Moon. You start it, I know a lot of you know about this, right? You start it right when the third lion roars, right, in the MGM logo, and then it will sync up with the entire movie, right? So it starts this entire, like, urban legend that Pink Floyd made this album to coincide with The Wizard of Oz. It's obviously not true. Pink Floyd did not have a VHS copy of The Wizard of Oz in 1972. They have totally disavowed this narrative, but that doesn't stop it from persisting. Um, It also then has this kind of legacy as uh, something that you would watch when you go to the movies during the psychedelic 60s, right? So there's a lot of films in the 1960s that get this kind of a veneer of psychedelica, even though they were never made for that purpose. So things like Fantasia, a lot of Fellini films, Fantastic Voyage, 2001, they all become part of this larger countercultural narrative about finding the psychedelic in what was, you know, kind of more quotidian um, films, right? Um, And it's no surprise, I think, that each of these films, uh, each of these kinds of films that I've listed have either magnificent color, like Fellini movies, or they're all made with really elaborate, pristine Hollywood special effects, right? Um, And it's something there about the way that, um, that a spectator looks at things and can take things on and twist them into new narratives. So we see something as kind of wholesome as The Wizard of Oz become something a little bit transgressive, a little bit dangerous, a little bit different. And what I think that can really tell us is that, you know, the people that make cultural objects don't have control over them, right? Cultural narratives are going to unfold in multiple kinds of ways that are unexpected, that are thrilling, that are a little bit dangerous, right? But that are always kind of fascinating. And that means that something like The Wizard of Oz doesn't have a natural history, right? It doesn't have a natural legacy. There's no way that it naturally exists. Instead, the ways that people use it transform over time And it allows us then to think about how culture moves and morphs and transforms depending on what moment in time we're in. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and definitely I could see how the Wizard of Oz would lend itself to that, like yeah. <laughs> the color. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's very sparkly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Jocelyn. Um, but we're going to have some audience questions. Hi, Jocelyn, thank you so much. You're so articulate. I've learned so much. I really appreciate that you made the trip out here to UCSB. Um, I don't know even know if a prince survives of it or not, but I'm curious. I think there was a version of Wizard of Oz that came out like 1910 or so, and I wonder if there were any special effects from that film that were incorporated into this version of the film. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't actually know. I know that there was, there was this early version too, but I really, really don't know. That said, um, in the 1910s, there would be um, some kinds of, um, some kinds of effects that we would still see, um, kind of used in different iterations at this point. So, like composite shots, right, would still be used in the 1910s, and we could then use composite shots later. What I think is really interesting, one of the many things that's really interesting about this question, though, is that. It gives us insight into how um, effects persist over time. So even like in the digital era, right? We think it's like, oh, massive revolution! Like nothing like this ever occurred um, since you know it, it just totally exploded filmmaking. But if we look at the kinds of terms um, that are used in digital effects, things like uh, keyframes, right, or mats, or green and blue screen. These are all very, very early effects techniques, right? So there's a legacy of effects that reaches back, you know, all the way back to like the late 19th century, all the way through to today. It enables us to see that there's this entire continuum, right, of filmmaking that builds on different practices over time. Uh, so you mentioned immersion earlier, yeah. uh, and that's like obviously a very common discourse around special effects, but what I yeah. find really interesting about this film is that it's not quite as straightforward an immersion as, say, something like IMAX. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that like contradiction or tension uh, in the text of the film. Sure. Um, well, you know, IMAX, too... Okay, so IMAX. Sorry, also, it's not that simple, but no, 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 no absolutely. Um, I'm just thinking about it because you know there's this dream of having gigantic, like utterly enormous screens, basically since cinema begins, right? There's this dream of making like an absolutely massive, um, immersive screen, right? The bigger the screen, the more immersion that's possible, right? Um, so The Wizard of Oz is not made in a moment when like widescreen technology is taken off. That doesn't happen until the mid-1950s, right? Um, but it's still a moment when people are thinking about these kinds of things. But I think you're absolutely right that this is a slightly different kind of immersion. And the kind of immersion here, I think, is really about constructing, it's like a spectatorial contract, right? It's like, you're sitting here and I'm going to show you something fabulous, and if you just sit there and be quiet and pay attention and look forward, I will show you an entire new world that you've never seen before. And in a way, the kind of like, um, the, the bookending structure of, um, of The Wizard of Oz, which is another way that it's similar to something like Snow White, right? Because Disney movies always start with the book opening up and then the book closing. So we have a similar kind of structure here, and that signals to us, now's the time to pay attention, right? Start going into the fantasy world, and Kansas kind of functions in that way here. I think this film kind of tells us, if you're willing to go along with this Kansas moment and just stay with us, we're going to show you something like you've never kind of seen before. So in a sense, I think it's, it's providing a kind of pedagogy to the spectator. Like, just keep watching, just keep still, just keep quiet, and I'm going to show you something wonderful. 
All right. I have one quick question too, which I think is a relatively simple one, but uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, went and saw a 20th anniversary screening of The Matrix. And obviously, you know, the big uh, special effect that kind of exists in that is the bullet time. And, and I remember the way in which that special effect just proliferated around, not only in films uh, in, in serious ways, but also in comedic ways. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, out of The Wizard of Oz, was there one special effect that really became the iconic thing at that time, or that got picked yeah. up in the culture and kind of repeated a number of times in different spaces? Uh, or was it really kind of more of a just a grouping of effects that, that, that no one really stood out? Yeah, I mean... Again, the Wizard of Oz has such a strange cultural currency because we think of it as like, oh, everybody in 1939 just freaking loved this movie. But that's not, it really didn't gain um, uh, any sort of notoriety or any sort of um, major cultural valence until it shows on TV. And it shows regularly and becomes a part of our lives. Um, so I think, you know, in 1939, I can't think of something that would be would have been like so stunning besides the use of Technicolor, right? Technicolor is such a massive kind of aspect of that. But I think that why it then becomes so important later in the 1950s and on is that the effects are a bit dated by then, right? They're a little bit dated. Um, They're not as impressive. You know, you can do traveling mats with Technicolor by the um, early 1940s. So even by then, it's kind of dated, right? It looks kind of dated. So instead, um, the effects become this kind of aspect of nostalgia, Right? They become this nostalgia for a Hollywood that once was. Right? Or Dorothy in Kansas becomes like a nostalgia for, America, for an America that never was. Right? Like a simpler America. We're always dreaming about that. Right? That's like the constant rhetoric throughout the history of this country. We're always dreaming of this America that never really existed. And The Wizard of Oz provides that for us. As well, the legacy of Judy Garland. Right? We see her here. She's this innocent 15-year-old, right? she, but she has such presence. Right? She's such a, a magical figure who then, of course, experiences such great tragedy um, in her life. So rather than an effect that kind of lasts, I think it's actually about nostalgia and about dated effects. And that's what's so powerful about the film. And I'm so glad you bring up The Matrix, though, because that's another bullet time is also an effect that comes from animation. Right? It's an effect that comes from animation. It's done, um, uh, versions of it are done in very, very early approaches to animation with uh, keyframing and in-betweening. It's really based on um, assembly line animation practice. So that's another example of something that seemed so radical. I mean, I remember going to see it, and I was just like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this before. Right? It's, like, amazing. Um, but it actually comes from a really, really old history of um, assembly line animation production. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the reason that people loved this film in the 1950s was nostalgia. It was already nostalgic by the 1950s when people see it, right? It's all about this dream, this shared dream that we have of a version of America, which is also, of course, always a version of Hollywood. Okay, can I get a round of applause for Jocelyn? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.